0: That wonderful writer about the natural world and about walking, Robert McFarlane, says, A walk is only a step away from a story, and every path tells. And that could be a manifesto for Folk on Foot, it could be a manifesto for this podcast, except, Robert, what we do on this podcast is we add in songs too. So on these paths, we hear stories and we hear wonderful songs. We just got off the train at new craig hall which is just two stops south of edinburgh and we're here to meet Kareen polwart who's a wonderful songwriter singer poet storyteller winner of many radio 2 folk awards including the 2018 folk singer of the year award but i first came across her a couple of years ago when i saw her one woman show wind resistance at the edinburgh festival and it's an amazing show which is set at a place called fallow Moor, near to where kareem lives and it heads off in all sorts of mystical and poetic directions. But as I was watching the show, I thought it would be a wonderful thing to visit Fallamore and to visit it with Corrine herself and get her to tell me why the place had made such an impact on her. And that, I hope, is what she's going to do for us today. Hi, hey, we're just here. No, we're just standing, we were just standing on the platform. We're just recording. So Corinne picks us up at the station in her car and we've come to Falla and we've driven up a track, just caught the car on a couple of speed bumps and the track is surrounded by uh, hedges on either side and we're going to go for a walk towards the moor now. So Corrine, would you tell us why this place made such an impression on you that you wanted to write a show about it? Well, it's
1: the, it's the place I come most often in my home area. It's about two miles south of where I live and um, this is one of the few places where you get this sense of space and I just it makes me feel well (laughs) (laughs) kinda to come here.
0: And how did wind resistance begin? What was the inception of it?
1: It was the arrival of the geese the first arrival of the geese in at the autumn.
0: So the geese come here the geese come here.
1: Although I didn't know that. I mean I knew that the geese flew over because I see them every year. So I watched the geese fly over my garden and had that... I get quite excited when they come in for the first time. And then and I just thought, you know, I've never asked myself why they fly like that. Because I love the skiing formation of fly, it's really beautiful. And to me it's like somebody writing across the sky. But I'd never thought to ask why exactly like that. So I literally had watched them this one evening, gone in and had a... a Google around. (laughs) (laughs) And just got lost in a... You know, and in an evening's uh, delving into flight formation and bird ecology, and
0: and that's where the wind resistance concept. Yeah, is, I isn't literally it?
1: read an article on the aerodynamics of goose schemes, and there was a a phrase in it which talked about them creating pockets of wind resistance. And as soon as I read the phrase, it was like boom! I just could tell like it's like having a a songwriter's antenna. I was going, that's something. There's something in that. And the idea of creating wind resistance for one another immediately made me think of health care and social care.
0: Because of protecting exactly. another member of because the community. because the screen
1: formation is literally a, an aerodynamic sanctuary and each of the birds has a, takes a role in leading and then following. And it made me think about, because it's everywhere in the news, about the pressure upon human social services. And in every village community, you know, in my village community, Everything is done by about six or eight people. They run the youth club, they run the pensioners' lunch club, and it's the same tiny number of people that make all these really important things happen, and they never get a rest. So in that respect, a lot of what we do isn't like geese. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's just the same people doing and doing and doing.
0: And carrying the weight. and,
1: And carrying the weight until they get burnt out. And then what followed was a whole bunch of stuff I didn't realise about this area, because what my delving that night took me to was the fact that the geese land here, so they overwinter here.
0: And they're coming south from Greenland? They're coming
1: from Greenland and Iceland. Um, and there's various spots across Scotland and, and the north of England where they, where they overwinter. But in particular, the geese here are pink-footed geese. Let's just and, get through this gate. And I think it's like 2% of the world's population of pink-footed geese. Overwinter on this moor, which is quite remarkable in a way because this moor is tiny, you know, this moor is three miles across. It's like it's, and you would blink and miss it on the main road.
0: Um, and do they make a real impact when they're here?
1: Oh, they're not. Because obviously they've
0: gone north now. Yeah, well, there's they? about
1: two and a half thousand of them. So, yeah, if you come up here and, and you're lucky on a day, you can catch eight or nine hundred of them taken off at once, and that's pretty. Awesome Amazing sight, sound and sight, yeah. But the sound is just, you know, it's properly visceral. What I hadn't realised until I started delving it a bit more was that this moor is also a sanctuary, so it's it's ecologically protected, and the reason for that is the geese. So th- this whole idea of sanctuary began to just really ramp up. I mean, I come up here to feel a sense of space. The geese literally fly in a in a in a flying sanctuary machine. <laughs> Um, and they land here on this place that we've decided, as humans, is, is a sanctuary. And the other thing that connects with this area, you can't see it today because it's so... so is it dream? Dream, It's dream, yes. <laughs> it's properly
2: dream, Is that right
1: on the edge of this moor, and we might be able to catch a little glimpse of the hill, was the main um, hospital settlement in the m- medieval period. North of York, the biggest hospital north of York, was sighted. This is literally, the Sutra Hospital. The Sutra is Hospital yeah. was sited literally on the edge of the moor and it was a sanctuary, so it was a religious sanctuary you know, for, for pilgrims and wayfarers and the poor and the sick. All these ideas of sanctuary just began to... They were there. And they
0: began to weave <sighs> a did. web in your mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that connection between looking after land and looking after people seems to me like the two things are hand in hand with one another. And the connection between... Stuff that grows and human health and medicine.
0: Well, the moss. Yeah. The moss on this moor, yeah. which I, I, I read and I learned from your show, used to be used for wounds.
1: I used, it's used for wound dressings. It still is some places in the world because um, it's super absorbent. I think it can absorb up to 25 times its own mass. Um, so, yeah, it was used as early early wound dressings to swap up sop up blood.
0: I'm really worried you haven't had your breakfast yet, Green. I've got I wonder a butter scone for more Should we just stop till you eat yeah. your scone? Because <laughs> it's quite early in the day and you haven't had food. So we, we need to get you some food. Maybe if we give you food you might sing for us. Will that? Absolutely. Will that work? <laughs> I love my
1: feud on scones.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a scone to you, is it? Because uh-huh. we have this debate. Because my partner's from it? Essex uh-huh. and she says scone. Snus- and my mother's from Sheffield and uh-huh. she says scone. Yeah, but people in London say Scotland.
1: Just as we get to the, the brow of this hill here, we'll be on the moor, as I understand it. So we're passing out a little copse here, mostly larch trees along the, the edge. Um, and in the wind resistance theater piece that I made, uh, the larch trees have a, have a role. They're, they're, um, there's a story, an old traveler story by a, a great storyteller called Duncan Williamson, which concerns the larch and the birch and the oak, um, who are the villains of the piece. <laughs> <laughs> and the spruce and the pine and the juniper, who are the kind of heroes who offer sanctuary to a wee robin who's wounded. Um, so these are the larch trees. There's nothing wrong with them, really, bless them.
0: <laughs> and birds, are right through the whole piece, aren't they? Because it's not yeah. just the geese, you're talking about the robin, and we've been listening to the larks the here. The larks,
1: yes. Um, the red grouse um, lives here as well. It, it's got a really brilliant cry, go back, go back, go back. It's a little bit... It's a very um, harsh sound. And yeah, and other birds as well, if you're up at the crack dawn, you'll hear curlews and golden plovers, and you'll hear snipe beating. Um, So yeah, there's lots to hear. And actually the whole making of wind resistance has been a a wee journey into appreciating not just how a landscape looks but how it sounds. Which requires me to move very slowly, which I find quite difficult.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To move slowly because that's how you listen.
1: Because if you're moving, you're taking up too much sonic space, to be honest. (laughs) Um, So you have to be still
0: That's a Skylark with they're,
1: they're like the number one here so that's the most dominant sound of all is the is the Skylark. And but there's we're a song lucky. about the
0: Skylark, isn't there? In there the is. Show. I mean I
1: could give you I could, could give you that you one. Give it, yeah, yeah we've got the
0: course. guitar here with you. Fantastic.
1: I don't often go walking with my
0: guitar. But... <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're very privileged. It looks to me like that's a four-string guitar. It's a tenor,
1: yeah.
0: And it's seen some action as well, hasn't it?
1: I think it's it's the 1930s so
0: how oh, is it i was
1: going to say I'm, I'm not i'm i don't i don't walk with my guitar i'm not woody guthrie but this is sort of woody guthrie era yeah. guitar
0: <laughs> where did you get it from
1: i got it from ebay
0: that's <laughs> <laughs> a modern way of doing it <laughs> there was a sort of intervention by a kind I of modern bird. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The lark was singing along with you there and then all of a sudden a modern bird came across. Do you know what's funny? Me. That's
1: one of the things I realised in coming up here to make the show with Pippa Murphy, the sound designer um, and composer, my friend, um, was just how much we tune out the other noises. And actually, when you listen back to the recordings, oh my God, even at five in the morning, the trucks that go up and down the A68. <laughs> and And you realise you just, your brain is filtering that out, but it's actually there. It's there yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. No, it is, it's it's nice to sing it and stitch you actually. It feels <laughs> so, different,
0: doesn't it? To it hear does, I, I, yeah. I, I, the experience of listening is certainly different yeah, to hear it yeah. right here with the lark singing away in the background. No,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you about some of the other threads of of wind resistance because there's another story about Will and Roberta. Yes. And well, that came from somebody you met in the community here, didn't it?
1: It is. I have a song called Salters Road. Um, which I recorded on my 2012 album, Traces, and it's a sort of minding for an old neighbour of mine. I now live in Pathhead, the the village that we passed through on the way here, but I used to live on a farm estate between Thalamour and Pathhead called Whitborough Estate, and one of my neighbours was this elderly woman called Molly Christensen, and she was in her late 80s when I met her, and she was born um, just a couple of miles to the west of here in a a little hamlet um, called Crichton, and she was a great neighbour because I was at that time I had my son, I was at home a lot um, with my son, and she was at home a lot because she was an elderly woman living on her own. But we got on great, and uh, she was just very kind and very funny and very knowledgeable about this area because, she, like I say, she grew up here and she grew up just with her father, and she had these great stories about. They were a wee team She used to. He was a horseman in the area He was renowned for being a sort of Midlothian horse whisperer um, And she used to go to school Sometimes on horseback In the village of Pathhead Where I live now uh, And caused quite a consternation I think in fact they had to tell her To stop bringing her horse Because it caused too much
2: fuss <laughs>
1: <laughs> But she was a great character And actually this one day um, We were on our way to vote It was, a, it was a, an election day And we were both activists for different political parties. Let's just say on the opposite ends of political
2: spectrum.
1: (laughs) I took her to vote at Falla Village.
0: No hard feelings, obviously. No hard feelings. I knew she was voting
1: clearly for the wrong party. But um, we didn't let this get between us. (laughs) So I took her to vote at Falla. And I was taking her the road that I thought we should take. And she said, no, 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 no. There's an old road here. She said, just go down here. And it looked to me like a thicket. I thought, I don't want to drive down there. She said, no, it's fine. This is the Salters Road, she said. Just go down there. And we went down this beautiful old road.
0: And the Salters Road the Salters was about road. the travelling of salt from the from, pans nearby. Exactly,
1: from Preston Pans and the Fourth Coast. And then, obviously, it was, a, it was a really prized asset. At that time, it would be smuggled inland through Lothian and Borders. And the house that I lived on at Whitborough was on the Salters Road, so Molly and I lived on this road. And um, so when she died, um, and her funeral was in in Crichton, I wrote this song in memory of of these stories that she told me about her global travels, because she did get around, she went to Canada, she ended up marrying a Danish man and brought him back to Scotland with her. So although she was very much of this place, she'd had quite intrepid adventures for a woman of her generation. But this had stuck in my head the story of how she came to be born and she told me that her mother had died giving birth to her and I remembered that. So when I came to make Wind Resistance and the threads all began to coalesce around the idea of protection and human health and the fragility of new life, which is the fragility of new life for all the things that live here, for the larks that are nesting right now, but the fact that there had been the, the hospital on the edge of the moor um, and one of the facts that had really stuck from reading about the Sutra Medieval Hospital was that it was forbidden, uh, on religious grounds, for them to offer medical care to women who were pregnant. But they did, so there's all kinds of medical evidence that pregnant women were there. There's evidence that they were treated with juniper berries because they were, they were used to help postpartum haemorrhaging. So that got me thinking about the fact that there must have been Countless women given birth illicitly in this area, and in very precarious circumstances, and the fact that my children were born just over the hill at Borders General Hospital, it made me think about Molly. So Molly's story of being born is the story of her mother dying. That's really the kind of emotional heart of of wind resistance. It's incredibly poignant story. that
0: story, isn't it? And the way you tell it, and we don't we don't get that information until later in the piece yes um because we're already if you like we're already friends with will and reverter because of the way you've described them and exactly. the, these are molly's parents and, and then you have that sense of loss but it, it, it's tangled up with your own experience of childhood. she
2: was waiting for a boy in
1: of other people's experience of, of labour and birth and there are three deaths in the course of the of the piece. Um, the death of a childhood friend who did, who did. Um, yeah, she, she died of postpartum complications uh, in 1999 and then the old ballad of the death of Queen Jane which harks back to Henry VIII and Jane Seymour who also died um, giving birth and then to molly's to molly's birth my birthing of my son is also a big part of the piece but he lived and yes. i and i, I live Is to be grateful for the things that we've created.
0: The progress that's been made.
1: Yeah, and every single thing that we take for granted in our existence now, every every point of care, I mean, medicine is the heart of it. So all the health services that we have have evolved from, you know... from the monks over there. From the, from the priests that are up up there on the hill. And before that, you know, there were local healers here, a lot of them would have been women, with knowledge, indigenous knowledge of plants and what they what they could do to help people. So but everything's been hard wrought. You know, Molly was born in nineteen twenty and one of the things I wanted to research was the comparison over a, a hundred year period between now and then um, of things like, you know, maternal mortality. Well, of course
0: there was there was no health service in nineteen twenty. Unbelievable
1: was there? well right from nineteen twenty right through until just before the pre-second world war era, the maternal morbidity statistics for Scotland were Four thousand deaths per hundred thousand live births, and now it's ten. So it's like a staggering difference. And you know, the, the worst place to be to be given birth now, I think, is South Sudan. And, and even there, the the morbidity statistics are half of what they were everywhere in the 1920s and 30s. So I I just think, remember, <laughs> you know, remember that because it's these things are. I don't believe progress is inevitable. And that's part of the point of wind resistance is just, for me, pointing to the way that we look after this space. This, this outdoor environment can seem disconnected from the needs of human beings, but to me they're one and the same thing. If you're not looking after the land, the land is what's sustained people mm. <laughs> forever. So if it's scuppered, we're, we're a short step away from scupper and everything else, I think. There's a curlew. <laughs>
0: This podcast's all about talking but it should sometimes no. be about about <laughs> listening shouldn't just it it should up. be like, just be quiet <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's it was honestly it's been so great the number of times I've come up here with Pippa Murphy and she's literally just turned to me and gone like with a finger out shh stop She even told me to change my jacket once because my clothes were too noisy <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sam Lee talks about the crisp packet jackets absolutely. He hates well, the crisp well, packet oh, the jackets, jackets. Yeah, exactly. are really <laughs> <terrible>. absolutely
1: <laughs> Oh that's lovely
2: and
0: there's, there's
1: a lark again There's a wee Scots song about the lark. Up in a walk, in a
2: walk with a laverock, up in a walk, in a walk in the morning. Up in a walk, in a walk with a laverock, up in a walk in the hills for me. And the laverock
1: is uh, the Scots word for for lark. I know you mentioned Robert McFarlane earlier on, and I'm a fan of several of Robert's books, and The Landmarks is my favorite one and the lost words the recent one that um the illustrated book with Jackie Morris trying to um, save
0: the language that's been he actually started that because um certain words have been taken out of the, out dictionary, of the dictionary the, the children's yeah. dictionary acorn definitely and i know and it's quite uh, shocking Adder. actually
1: well the skylark is one of them um the wren the heron like these are these are my like heart creatures you know i've got songs about all of those things <laughs> yes. and they're in this book as like things that are lost heather it's one of the things that's in the book. Like let's just go what on earth? Um,
0: and are there Scots words that you Well there are actually that what preserve? the Lost
1: Words project has made me think is that the whole issue around losing language isn't just to do with English words. It's caught on because these are these are iconic English language words. You know they're they're redolent of like the kind of tradition of English literature and pastoral thinking and all and all the rest of it, many of the words that are in that book. But for me, there's also the issue of Scots and Gaelic and Welsh and Irish and all the other languages that are languages of these isles have their own words for these creatures. And there's something around the fragility of those languages and what they tell you about places as well. And one of the, in Gaelic, there, there are several words for skylark. And one of the older words is a word called fosk. And, and, and it means open space. And there's something about that that I think is amazing because they are quintessentially birds of open space and open sky. Not just open space. Fosk means open space, including the space that's above you. Um, and to me, it's like the bird name and the place that the bird inhabits are one and the same concept. And there's something really beautiful about that and actually really ecologically important mm. <laughs> about that. That it tells you what that bird requires in order to live. So I want to know what the words are, or what the words were, for these birds, and I want to know what the birds meant, and what the myth and symbolism around all of those creatures was, because I think that's also significant. I mean, the curlew that we've just heard, in, in English lore, the curlew is one of the seven whistlers, along with the golden plover, which is another bird you would hear here, and the seven the seven whistling birds. Here he comes, gosh, he's so close. Oh, here he is. Amazing but there are seven birds with a very similar doleful plaintive cry. And this is interesting, because to me, curlews and plovers sound sad, and l- skylarks sound happy. Yes, <laughs> You know, like you're it's making true. those, and they're just like, they're connections that you're making purely based upon the meaning you're attaching to the sound that you hear. Um, and so the the plover and the curlew are one of the seven, seven whistlers, and they're said to, that when the seven whistlers all sing together... The end of the world is here, so
0: good job we've only got one of them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this one's flying in circles, very close yeah, to us, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Well, he's there. Maybe nesting, and maybe maybe he's a little bit anxious. So, gosh, have I got? I don't have any curlers. Get my. I'll get my wee.
0: Kareem, you've got a bag box. as well as the guitar case. You brought a bag. Have you got something interesting in there? Yeah. Uh, yes. The a some... shoebox. So, what's this instrument you've taken out of the Clark's shoebox?
1: It's called a sansula, um, so it's a, it's an adaptation of various um, West African thumb pianos like mbira, kalimba, um, but it's been given a kind of resonating skin.
0: So that's made of wood, is it? It's that... made
1: of wood. This is made of uh, a calf skin, maybe? I'm not sure what the top is, but it has a... and if you have it against a flat surface it makes a beautiful kind of wah-wah sound but I've got a little song which is inspired by the mood itself and actually it, it, one of the great things about coming to make a theatre piece is is realising that as a folk singer I've got a little kind of karaoke jukebox in my head so when I laid out the arc of the theatre piece um, I was looking for songs that connected with different things and one of them was Heather and of course Scottish traditional Cannon is full of songs about heather, heather and broom and win are everywhere so this is one of them and it's a song I learned from Alison McMorland who's one of the greatest uh, tradition bearers
2: As I was walking our yon hill All on the summer's evening There I spied a bonnie lass, skipping but fed through the heather Mm. And oh but she was neatly dressed Needed hat nor feather. She was the queen among them all. Skeppel, Barfed, through the hair. Petticoats were a pheasant colour And in between the stripes were seen Shining bells or blooming heather
0: talk about what's around us because I can see lots of white
1: Oh it's bog cotton. bog cotton Yeah I love bog cotton it's one of the just such beautiful stuff and gorgeous when it's dried.
0: And what do you do with it when it's dried?
1: You you make your kitchen look pretty
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you come up here sometimes and collect the moss? And... No
1: I do actually there's a little It's a little, looking a bit sorry for itself. I, I must do it before the season ends with the bog cotton because it only it's the kind of like late May and into June and then it disappears um I've got some in the front of my car. I just really yes. think it's beautiful. Like I think bog cotton and heather are two of the most beautiful plants. So I like having it around my house and in my car.
0: So Corinne, how did music begin for you? Was it something that you grew up with?
1: Um it was up to, in a fashion but not folk music. Um so my mum my mum liked to sing. She used to be in choirs when she was younger. But most of her singing in the house was Singing along with
0: records. Right. So, What sort of um, things was she listening to?
1: Well, what I remember was we had a radiogram and we, they didn't have a vast collection, but it was things like uh, Simon and Garfunkel uh-huh. and Cat Stevens um, and War of the Worlds.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Jeff Wayne. <laughs> I yes, like, I loved yes that. with Richard so Burton. Yeah. And actually, I think
1: that gave me a proper love of storytelling, uh, and this whole thing about spoken word and song uh, combined in a narrative, to me War of the Worlds is still epic yes. so so I think that some of that proggy 70s stuff <laughs>
0: actually
1: is, feeds back into what I'm interested in now, but you know what, it wasn't um, it wasn't particularly folky the folkiest thing they had would be Hamish Imlach right. or the Johnson family um, so there was a little bit of kind of nod to kind of tradier sounding stuff, but I guess in Scotland, when you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, everyone was exposed to some degree to folk music. So we used to have Burns competitions in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what, and you had to
0: set Burns to music? or
1: you had, There were comp- competitions to sing diff- to songs or recite poems every year on Burns night. It was very gendered, weirdly. I remember when I was at school, there, were, there was a girl's set song and a boy's set song. Oh, really? And I remember, alas, in my year at primary school, refusing to do the girls' song because she thought it was stupid um, and doing Scots Wahe instead and being, I think, the first girl to go, I'm not singing you, Banks and Braves, that's for girls. Um,
0: <laughs> so, a, it, a bit of taken. a feminist stand. A bit of a feminist stand is good her. Yeah. But yeah. actually,
1: it, it, it meant that we were exposed to Scots language and, and a lot of those songs are really familiar. When I was a kid at primary school, we had a local village band so I, I grew up just outside a village called Banknock in Stirlingshire. And um, one of our local school teachers ran the village band with a local taxi driver. So the teacher played the guitar and sang and the taxi driver played the drums and drove the van. <laughs> and there was about 15, 16 of us used to go around in the band and play at kind of care homes and hospitals and stuff like that. And most of it was... It was it was kind of poppy stuff for the day, but I remember I had four big songs, and they were uh, Joe Lean, um, Bright Eyes, Space Oddity, which is quite random, yes. and um, the Donna 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 that Joan Baez did. Joan Baez, yeah, yeah. So I had so maybe that was my first. Maybe that was my first folk song song. solo. (laughs) Um,
0: Because your career set off... You you worked as a social worker for a time, didn't you? I did. What sort of work were you doing?
1: I used to work for the Scottish Women's Aid movement, so I worked originally as a a play worker with kids who were living in refuge in Dundee and Glasgow. And then I got um, work that was more about lobbying around issues of domestic abuse and child protection. So I did that for three years.
0: And did you find that very stressful?
1: I found the office-based work much more stressful than the contact time with actual people. I found the the pressure around the politicking much, much harder the
0: to deal with. And
1: yeah, and in the end, I, I left the job not because of the issues themselves, because um, I think Women's Aid is an amazing organisation and has actually managed to done, do a lot in the past 20 years to change things, but because I couldn't cope with the pace of... It was this. It was this stressful workplace energy, and I and I bailed out. I bailed out in the cause of music. I, I, I was signed off sick for the first time in my life on a stress sick line, and literally formulated my resignation letter in the week that I was off. Came in on the Monday and said I'm leaving, and I had absolutely nothing.
0: Did that feel scary?
1: It did feel a bit terrifying, but I think I just knew in my bones that it's what I said earlier about about that field of. Everything that has to do with social change or care for people, there are just a lot of burnt-out people. And I think I could see the writing on the wall. I was only 29 at the time, but I could see how it might pan out and that others were also ill. Their work was making them ill, and it was because there weren't enough resources around to support people. So I thought, well, I could be there or I could do something else.
0: So what was the role of music in your life at that time?
1: When I was living in Glasgow, I had joined a... Six-week-long choir project, and it was a, it was all people that it was all women from my work. I think it was women that worked for Women's Aid and Rape Crisis and other um, support organisations like that. And we got together a choir for this big festival called Glasgow, and it was like the first. It was the first experience I'd had since I was a kid of being in a, in like a band, um, and it was brilliant. So when I came to Edinburgh, I thought I want more of that. So I joined two choirs. One was a folk music project. There was a class called Women in Folk Song, and I thought that sounds like right up my street. <laughs> and there was a, a kind of uh, a group that met in, in women's living rooms called Sedenka, and they sang mostly Balkan songs and kind of it was like a sort of songs from around the world. So simultaneously, I was doing these two things and just absolutely loved it. That got me into um, the session scene in Edinburgh, and in the late 90s, the session scene in Edinburgh was unbelievable. Every night of the week and quite a lot of afternoons, you could be out in a pub in Edinburgh and meet these incredible singers and players. And from my point of view, the singers were like the leading tradition bearers. You know, Cahill McConnell from Boys of the Loch would often be at a session. But fabulous women singers like Gordina McCulloch and Anne Nielsen and Aileen Carr, these are all, you know, legendary, legendary singers. Names, in yeah. kind of, they were there and they were really kind. So I would come in... I looked much younger than I was, but I was already 20 years younger (laughs) than most of the people that were there. So I think that the fact that I was interested in it, people were really generous with their songs. Um, The Death of Queen Jane that I mentioned, it's one of the songs that appears in Wind Resistance and Pocket of Wind Resistance. I literally think the the words were scribbled down on a handkerchief in a a bar in Edinburgh. But to me, it was like finding this hidden world. And through the Women in Folk Song class especially, that, that project was a community project which still exists in Edinburgh it's now called the Scots Music Group but I met some of my best friends through that and there's still a core of us that keep in touch and actually all of us at the time were working in yeah mental health and community activism and stuff like that
0: Was was music an escape in a way?
1: It It was an escape and it was an uplift and a lot of the songs that I was learning were songs of protest or songs that documented women's history so to me it was a natural extension of what I'd been doing with women's aid, but it was just much better fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I loved it and I think, I mean, I I, I did it literally to feel better and to meet people because I was in a new city. And then what happened was my confidence began to get up and I would stand up and sing a song on my own and people began to go, oh. And then people began to say, would you like to come and do a song at such and such an event? And then eventually people said, would you like to come and do a song at such and such an event and we'll give you 50 quid? <laughs> and, uh, and so it began to kind of grow. But it all happened very quickly. And within it, 18 months, I think.
0: Would you be able to sing one of the early songs that oh, you learned? Yes, or maybe one of the early songs that you wrote?
1: I could sing you one of the early songs that I wrote, for That'll sure. Be great.
0: We'll just stand here in this wonderful sea of bog cotton. Why do you sing? Because it's white, as far as I can see. Uh, across the moor here.
1: I'll sing you a song then called... Well, actually, the the song that was Good Luck for me was a song that I wrote. A group of women came from Bosnia to visit Edinburgh in 1998, and um, a group of us from Women's Aid went to see them speak at the city chambers in Edinburgh, and they were all women from Srebrenica, and they were trying to... um, galvanised the European community around the war crimes that had been committed there and there was a big Scottish connection because a lot of the forensic teams were from Dundee and Glasgow and uh, yeah they were in Bosnia helping to kind of uncover the graves but I was really moved by these women and I remember hearing them speak and then going for a walk in Holyrood Park in Edinburgh and writing a song as I walked round Arthur's Seat so it's called Where Do You
2: Lie, Um yeah, and it goes like this. Where do you lie, my feather? And where do you lie, my son? Where do you lie, my in true love? When will the truth be won? our friends they came to protect us our friends they bade us bide Our friends left us stand in their naked We no place left to hide What deal I my feather and what deal? And where do you lie, my in true love? When will the truth be won? Our neighbours they came with a hundred year hate. Our neighbours they came with guns. Our neighbours they came for our men folk. And they slew them, everyone. What do you lie, my father? What do you lie, my son? And what do you lie, my true love? When will the truth be won? I he sought your grave with my mother. I have sought your grave and veil. I he sought the bare beans, o oh, the truth and the men. Father, who are ye lean? Where do you lie, my Father? And what day you lie, my son? What day you lie, my in true love? When will the truth be won. Ah, he cried out your name till the four winds. Ah, he cried out your name till dawn. I cried in the arms, oh, your sister dear. What do you lie, my son? What do you lie, my father? What do you lie, my son? What do you lie, my in true love? When will the truth be won? I dreamed of your breath upon me. I dreamed of your yellow hair. I dreamed of the sound of your dying love. What a lie, my dear. What day you lie, my father, and what day you lie, my son, and what day you lie, my in true love, when will the truth be won?
0: An amazing song. I, I was thinking of so many things while you were singing that because it raises in my mind the question of what songs do. Because Mm. you're documenting something, you're documenting a a war crime, you're telling it from the perspective of a a woman, an individual who's been wounded by it. Do you think the song can do more than document things? Do you think a song can go out there and change things as well?
1: Oh, I think change is maybe a more subtle process. I think it can contribute in the way that Lots of things can contribute, you know, literature can contribute and good journalism can contribute and good, like, good behaviour in the streets. You know, like talking to people at bus stops can contribute, you know, it can contribute in the same way as those things. It has ripples, if you know what I mean.
0: But there's a power in listening to you sing that, which is touches me emotionally,
1: oh, right. as opposed to well, I think music, reading I mean, about it. If I read an article no. in a
0: newspaper... Well,
1: actually, that's true. And I think music, well, music occupies a different place in your body well, it affects your body in a visceral way, in a way that um, it's, not about, it's not just about your mind. You know, it's, there's other things in play. So I think you can, and I'm aware of that power as a singer and as a performer in physical space, that you can set up sort of, I use this word, magical places, and I don't mean that in, a hairy, in an airy-fairy fashion. I mean, like, you're sort of in an other space than your normal, just walking, talking life.
0: I was yeah. watching your, your performance at the Biggest Weekend the BBC Biggest Weekend where you did I burn but I am not consumed which I think was your response to the election of Donald Trump as was, president yeah. of the USA yeah. and you did it with the Scottish Symphony Orchestra tell us about that song and that that piece and and how you wrote it
1: Yeah well I was invited in 2017 to be part of the opening show at Celtic Connections and the show the show was going to be anchored around six acts performing with the symphony orchestra and it just so happened that the opening night of Celtic Connections was the eve of the inauguration of Donald Trump so in my head I was going there's no way I am going to sing on the eve of the inauguration of Trump and not reference that somehow so I asked permission about a month in advance I said look I think I would like to write something connected with that Would, would that be okay and it was yeah, it would be OK, but we'll, we'll need to see what it is that you have to say first because it's the symphony orchestra and it's the BBC and we'll have to check that it's all going to meet the censor's approval and all the rest of it. So so I, it was quite thinking about how to say it. actually has a lot to do with this place that we're on, the moor, because in the making of Wind Resistance, I wrote a piece which only, only a tiny little bit of it comes into the making of Wind Resistance, but I came up and I lay on the moor one day... And a friend of mine had said, why don't you go up and just ask the moor what it has to say for itself? <laughs> and I lay on the moor and I wrote, again, it was a similar experience to the wordy lie, I wrote with my phone, I think it was, um... A piece called The Moor Speaks, where I literally am the moor. I am the moor where the wind sings. Um, I am earth and I am water. I am sedge and I am sky. I am chicken wire. And it was, you know, it was a whole, it was a litany of things. And it was all about the moor talking about how it had been inhabited and used. So that device of talking as if you were a place had had already tried that out. So when it came to write the piece for Donald Trump the thing that was of interest to me as a Scot and in the context of Celtic connections was that his mother was from the Isle of Lewis and so half of his heritage is Scottish and and Scottish island you know heritage his mother was a Gaelic speaker and there was some there's something about the fact of that that pains me as a Scottish person where I think oh, what what aspect of of where I am and my culture has contributed to who this man is. Like I felt sort of culpable on everyone's behalf. <laughs> no, but as, I, it was a genuine curiosity about how that can happen, and that whole that whole process. I wanted to write something that was both. Uh, how, how do you say this? Scathing, which was just the obvious thing, and wry, and had an eye on a different arc of time than the one that's about four year cycles of presidential elections and something that was that that rendered Donald Trump human at the same time because I talk about him being a little boy you, you are a broken boy and you want more and more and more and I talk about your mother was a Uyghur once who played upon my rocky shore. And you, you are a, bro- a broken boy and you want more and more and more. You build a tower, you build a wall. And the whole thing is from the perspective of the island of Lewis itself. And the fact that Lewis is built on metamorphic rock. It's called gneiss nice, and it's one of the oldest forms of rock on the planet. Um, and so that, that's been around for three and a half billion years which is an incredible arc of time when you think about human existence. So I wanted to write with that sense of there are things bigger than us here and whatever fuss and bother and mess we make, there are things that will persist after each of us is gone.
0: It's been amazing that you've shown us this place, this this amazing place today. Thank you so much, You're Gary. very
1: welcome. I only really wish you could have seen the full extent of the view. but We'll come again. Another time. <laughs>
0: If you've enjoyed this edition of Folk on Foot, please do rate and review us so that more people can find us. You can subscribe to Folk on Foot on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts by clicking the subscribe button. And for more information, you can go to our website at folkonfoot.com where you can find out about the episode, the guests, and the team behind the podcast. And there are more episodes of Folk on Foot with Cara Dillon in Dungiven. Sam Lee singing with Nightingales in Sussex, the Younguns in Hartlepool, Steve Knightley on the X-Trail and Eliza Carthy in Robin Hood's Bay.